Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news, live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all packed into a concise, informative update. It's Thursday, the 18th of January, coming up on the program, Selling South Africa at Davos, Just How Tough is the Job? We're live in Switzerland. The scourge of false qualifications in the wake of the Lioka affair, the increase in online job scams, why climate change is accelerating extreme weather in South Africa, and will a Grade 9 school exit certificate actually work? As the World Economic Forum continues in Davos, how can South Africa make a serious case that it's open for business? How much more difficult is it to sell the concept of a safe investment destination, one that in many cases is broken at worst and dysfunctional at best? Well-known business leader and brand figure, Tebi Ikalafeng, joins us now from what I imagine is a chilly Switzerland. Tebi, how is South Africa then effectively presenting itself as open for business? I think the important thing, for, for uh, particularly for this year's uh, World Economic Forum, is that it's been 30 years of a democratic republic of South Africa since the first democratic elections. And I think the message that we bring into Davos is the message that uh, uh, this is a country that obviously is still in, uh, in, in development. It's a country that recognizes and acknowledges the challenges we have, uh, whether it's the challenges around uh, energy, whether it's the challenge around logistics. And that's why one of the biggest messages that we, we left South Africa with and came to to Davos with as well is we are focusing on those challenges, the challenges of logistics, of energy. We are focusing on rebuilding the country or building on the country's um, uh, assets. Is that difficult or is that message becoming more difficult to land, do you think? Of course, it, the, the message is always uh, 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 difficult if if people don't do not see uh, on the ground the real uh, the, the real changes. I think this year we are a formidable delegation. I think I think probably about 100 South Africans or 50 to 100. I can't remember how many South. Must be about 100 because we hosted uh, SA night two nights ago and this it was quite full. Um, and we had the Minister of Health, and the Minister of uh, Minister Energy was supposed to come, but unfortunately he had a, 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 a personal matter that he had to stay behind. You had the Minister of Education, you had the Minister of Treasury Minister. So all of them were here as a formidable team to tell the story. I mean, you had the captains of of industry from our Standard Bank, from NetBank, I saw uh, Daniel Minele from NetBank, NetBank, Standard Bank, NetBank, and across, I mean, across across the board. I think, of course, your your question is relevant, whether it's difficult. Uh, It is difficult. It's difficult because we have to acknowledge the truth as South Africans that uh, we are going through difficult times right now. Do you think that the detractors are buying the message or buying the optimism that South Africa is desperately trying to sell? Do you think that people are saying, well, okay, we we understand the challenges that you've just outlined. We are prepared to give you a chance. I think so. I think so in many ways. Of course, if you look at the rest of the continent, we still remain uh, uh, perhaps the the most uh, 
uh, attractive uh, investment destination. If you look at just our, our, our baselines in terms of where we are as a country from an infrastructure uh, that we have on um, the infrastructure, whether it's intellectual infrastructure or physical infrastructure, you look at what we do in financial services, in telecommunications, of course, we still are the most preferred to our country. I think that the challenges with South Africa remain the challenges that are within our leadership's uh, grasp to, uh, to fix, whether it's security, whether it's energy, uh, whether it's logistics. Those are all those, those are not like other countries where they do not have anything. Here it's a challenge that if the leadership uh, folds its uh, arms and uh, rolls up its sleeves and, and gets to work, we can overcome these challenges. The theme that Davos has this year, rebuilding trust, how relevant is that, do you think, to South Africa's efforts to overcome this existential crisis that we're facing? Perhaps there couldn't have been a more aligned theme, both globally and locally. I think everybody knows that the biggest uh, challenge for South Africa is to rebuild trust. It's to rebuild trust with the citizens, rebuild trust with business, uh, rebuild trust uh, with, the, with the rest of the world that we can be the country that we uh, that we promised to be and that we used uh, that we used to be. It is the singular uh, uh, singular theme that as a country we all we, 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 we should be all focusing on and we are all focusing on and uh, and, and I hope uh, the pro- political space, uh, space as well I hope they all uh, focus on that but it is about that it's we have to rebuild trust and I, I, you know when when because I saw the theme for Davos uh, first time uh, a few months ago and at that time already we've been really working with this with, with, with brand South Africa and saying that the theme this year for South Africa for forget not about Davos just about South Africa itself is about restoring trust is about rebuilding trust so when we saw this theme for Davos he said you know what part of the bigger message to go out to the world is to restore is to rebuild trust not just uh, internally but also externally that we can be that country that used to deliver and that can deliver stuff. yeah i mean you've raised part of the issue is also re- rebuilding trust internally and you'll concede that right now again given all the problems that we're facing there is a deficit in internal trust in south africa right now isn't there and uh, and if you look at some of the uh, some of the surveys that have been done uh, externally and internally, uh, internally uh, looking at uh, where the trust is, and we know for sure people do not trust governments. Uh, people trust business a little bit better. Uh, so, so the rebuilding trust is a, is a two-way street, and I think you saw when it comes to logistics, when the when the, when the president did uh, setting up a committee, uh, and uh, or the business coming to to government that says, let's help you solve those problems, uh, because part of building trust is about working mm. together, uh, and it's about seeing the real uh, delivery on 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 the words that you, on the words that you put on the table. I think our challenge as South Africa, and I always say it, you know, I was saying to some of uh, our business colleagues um, uh, yesterday. Uh, I said part of a challenge at South Africa is we speak very good English and we write very beautiful papers. Uh, what we need to do is we need to uh, we need to actually deliver on those promises and on those words. And if we can do that, this country can uh, recover to what it used to what it used to be and what it's what is potentially capable of being. So in, in less words and more action. Tebi Akalafeng in Davos. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to Money Web at Midday. 
Ahead of matric results day tomorrow, the Department of Basic Education is pushing ahead with its plans to introduce a new school certificate for grade 9 learners. But the full rollout is now going to be a year later in 2025. Is this concept a good idea, I wonder? Well, with us now is respected educationist Professor Mary Metcalf. And firstly, Professor, what are your expectations for the matric results tomorrow, particularly in the light of current ongoing education? reforms. Do you have any optimism? Firstly, I think we can expect to see the ongoing impact of the loss of learning and the socio-emotional consequences of COVID. Secondly, I think that it will again give us an opportunity to interrogate inequalities across the system. So in what way does that need to be done then? It needs an analysis of the results by socioeconomic quintile, by province, we need to understand the patterns of performance relative to disadvantage. And the public school system must have effective mechanisms to ensure that all learners receive a quality education that takes into account the socioeconomic poverty that is a legacy of apartheid, as well as takes active education steps to intervene Mm. to ensure that all children get a quality education. And just very quickly, before we get to the grade nine issue, it's regrettable, isn't it, that we haven't got to grips with those concerns that you've raised any time soon? I think that that is consistent with the ongoing socioeconomic inequalities in the country. If you look at a map of um, household poverty by municipality and you superimpose that on a map of where the previous bounty stands were, we still have Mm. a match. Now that is because the consequences of that disadvantage are persistent and enduring and it needs to constantly remain on top of our consciousness and in the actions of government. Professor Metcalf, moving on to the other issue now, a lot of talk, it's not new of course, but it seems to be uh, reigniting as the introduction of this general education certificate for grade nine learners. What's your sense of the impact on the South African education system? Is this something to be welcomed? It is absolutely essential to the design of the system. So when we approached 1994, the question was, could we afford compulsory education for all learners all the way to the National Senior Certificate? Mm. That was a difficult debate in the public. It was a difficult debate in political circles because the aspiration is for everyone to do up to grade 12. Now, our compulsory education system is the General Education and Training System, GET. It's not part of the kind of public consciousness, but education is compulsory until the year in which you are in grade 9 or turn 15. So that is what we can optimally fund in the education system. So the notion of the general education period and the further education period from grade 10 has been fundamental to design. In order to then look at the 
personal options that follow compulsory education, whether you wish to work in the technical field, whether you want to go to university, whether or not you want to pursue a degree or a diploma or a certificate, all that's accommodated in the national qualification framework. But I am one of those who absolutely strongly believes that we need a grade nine exam at the end of the GET period, which is therefore the general education certificate, to assist learners in making those choices. Those choices are all well and good, Professor, but do you think this GEC would effectively prepare learners for real-world problem-solving and practical skills that are needed for this 21st-century workforce, particularly as we look at issues like artificial intelligence, for instance? What That's a different question. You see, the General Education Certificate should say all learners across the system this is where they've reached. There should be a recognition that they've achieved that, whereas at the moment, if learners leave before grade 12, they have no piece of Mm. paper. And that would be based on the curriculum. Now, the curriculum would be the policy mechanism to ensure that we meet the demands of the 21st century, etc. The general education certificate can only reflect what was taught in the curriculum. Professor, Given the high unemployment rate in South Africa right now, particularly with those without matric certification, do you think this GEC might improve job prospects for learners? What matters to me, I think, is that learners leave school with a sense of achievement and with a sense of hope. Mm, And dignity. Mm. Absolutely. Thank you for adding that. So if you leave school because suddenly you find yourself in grade 10, you find that you've repeated a few years, you're struggling, you leave school with a sense of failure. I think that to have a certificate that says, I completed the period of compulsory education, I have a certificate that says I did so successfully or at whichever level, it then gives you something in your hand that you can take out into the range of possibilities that exist. Of course, as long as we don't have a labor-absorbing economy, there will still be challenges. But that sense, I've been in school for, I've repeated several times, I've been in school for 11 years and I have nothing to show Mm. for it, is not good for dignity. I'm going to leave it there. Professor Mary Metcalf, thank you very much for the assessment. MoneyWeb at Midday. For all your up-to-date stories. Overnight, the presidency has asked economist Tabi Leoka, a member of the Presidential Economic Advisory Council, to, in its words, expeditiously address the matter of her qualifications. This follows reports that she doesn't have a PhD from the London School of Economics, as she's claimed. This is all raising the question once again about the presentation of false qualifications in South Africa. I want to get a view on that now from Professor Stephen Tucson from the Witz Law School here in Johannesburg. Professor, it's not the first time that we've read stories like this before. In your opinion, how rife is the falsification of qualifications in this country? Well, I'm not really an expert on the frequency uh, of this kind of behaviour, but I think the the Protection of Personal Information Act has made it, uh, if you read the, the news reports, made it much more difficult for people to independently verify people's uh, transactions because uh, qualifications because you contact these places and they just throw up in your face a blanket refusal and they're based it on confidentiality. 
And I don't know if people have the stamina to pursue it and do a, an access to information request and so on. So I, I do think, uh, and also I think people are desperate, which is not a, at all a justification. So I, I would surmise that it is on the increase. Mm. So obviously then companies would just follow the line of least resistance and accept the, uh, the the profit qualification at face value, and that can lead to this kind of incident. Yeah, we've had, uh, I mean, I'm just talking at the university, fact matric certificates and fact uh, altered um, degree certificates. So I'm sure it happens. Yeah, and as I said, it's so difficult to get this independent verification often they require the consent of the individual and that's not forthcoming and so you know what do you do uh, yeah it's bad but but we really need to talk about the 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 legal consequences for this kind of behavior so what laws then exist that govern the prosecution of people who falsify their qualifications is there recourse available certainly there is so there is the the qualification statute the, the recent Amendment Act, but we don't need that statute. We have common law. The common law uh, crimes, you know, since time uh, immemorial, we have the crimes of fraud and perjury. So fraud is the making of a false representation, knowing it to be false, with the intention to defraud uh, to the prejudice or even potential prejudice of another. And certainly, if you employ somebody on the strength of their undertaking that they have a particular qualification, you're definitely prejudiced. And so you could have prosecuted them under fraud, and if they've given evidence under oath, as I understand certain people have at a commission of inquiry, if that evidence is false under oath, that constitutes perjury. So all the statute has done is codify the common law and make it a lot easier to prosecute because it's very specific. It says if you have a... Um, if you If you misrepresent that you have a qualification that you don't have, you've committed an offence. You've got to, of course, have the appetite to prosecute, haven't you? And I would imagine many organisations will just say, it's not worth the fuss and bother. Yeah, they'll just fire the person and get them out because, you know, there's huge reputational loss uh, for the company to have that person on their board or employed. I was, I was just thinking, imagine going to a meeting with such an individual. How can you take them seriously? And it's not just I lied about did I go to the gym this morning. It's it's a very serious lie mm. to say that you've got a PhD and then to double down and persist in this false allegation. That person's character, uh, you know, it's just – and I would say that organizations would just want to see the back of them. You're out. Go quietly mm. and, you know, as you say, no appetite. Surely down the line there's also something of a liability issue given that any advice that they might have given uh, based on the qualifications they've proffered uh, is questionable and therefore uh, uh, might be false and that could have detrimental consequences. I think that would be, personally, I think that would be hard to prove in any civil action. You know, you need to prove a causal link between the conduct and then the alleged uh, loss. I, I, I suppose if you've charged big money for a report and the report is authored by a person who has a false uh, qualification, then it's possible in principle to succeed in an action for damages, maybe get your money back for the cost of that very expensive report. Um, But as I said, causation would be an an issue. And most of these people, the defense is, but I am competent, I am qualified. But I think that's not the issue. The issue is dishonesty this is blatantly dishonest and 
you know, you can't take these people seriously. It's a general question, but while there might not be the appetite to prosecute, should there be a decision to go ahead with legal action, would it be a difficult case to prove? I guess it would be on a case-by-case basis. I don't think it would be a difficult case to prove at all. The, the, the definitional elements of the crime in the statute are very, very simple. You made a representation that you have a qualification that you don't have. And um, uh, that is objectively and independently verifiable. Um, and the people like this would have uh, CVs, bios. If you're on a board, you have to give a brief bio, bio on the website setting out what you have and what you do and so on. So there'll be multiple instances of the person making that false representation. And so once the allegation is made, there would be a, a, a sort of a evidentiary burden on the accused to say, well, I do have their degree. I'm going to leave it there and thank you so much for the crisp analysis from the Witz Law School here in Johannesburg, Professor Stephen Tucson. Top stories to keep your eyes and ears on. Further heavy rainfall is forecast across KwaZulu-Natal and response operations are ongoing in many parts of the province following flooding. So I guess it begs the question, are we starting to face up to the reality now of climate change quickly enough? Probably not. I'm in conversation now with climate scientist Peter Johnson. Peter, with the current patterns of extreme weather events in South Africa, do you think that climate change is occurring now more rapidly than previously thought? Uh, Thanks for the question, Jeremy. I was listening to your previous interview, and I think two words came out of that interview that are applicable to what you're going to ask me, and the one is causation, and the other one is honesty. Um, We cannot ascribe the flooding that's going on in KZN right now to climate change. Let's be quite clear. We cannot say that this flooding or this heavy rainfall is climate change in action. If you look through the history, and we've got history going back to the 1850s, there's flooding in KZN and the region around there at least every second or every third year. Um, serious flooding, different places, clearly, um, different reasons. Uh, there, are, there are reasons that the KZN gets very high rainfall. The current rainfall is due to what we call a ridging high pressure combined with the existence of the of the tropical cyclone in Madagascar or off Madagascar in the Indian Ocean, which is drawing in moisture off the Indian Ocean and bringing this rainfall. Uh, the rainfall itself is not particularly heavy. It's quite intense, though. In other words, a lot of rainfall is falling in a short time. Now, that is caused by intense convection. Now, intense convection is caused by heating, and this is where the tenuous but real link to climate change comes in in that we know that the atmosphere and the sea are increasing in temperature those temperatures are rising inexorably we we see that rise every decade is higher than the decade before one or two years may not be as high and this means that the the atmosphere is more energetic Mm. so it might not be that the intensity of the rainfall of this particular event is higher than ever before but we are going to see more frequently that intense rainfall is going to fall. So there might never be the record intensity rainfalls, but there are going to be more of them and more spread out. Now, Ladysmith in particular, and this is where we have to be honest, it's not necessarily because there's heavy rain um, that be causing flooding. It's the situation of the city. It's situated next to the Clip River, which is flood prone. And the way it's been planned and the way it's been set up and the way that human uh, causation, if you like, 
is impacting on the flooding is very, very important. So, so we have to take this into account. Coming back to your question, though, are we ready for climate change? And, and this, is, this is a very broad question, because who's ready? And, and this comes to how to solve the problem of this flooding. And, and, and clearly, we can't do anything about the climate, not in the short term anyway. So we have to do something about the infrastructure vulnerability, and that's where we've got to look at the amount of hard standing, in other words, solid surfaces where water runs off very, very quickly, the maintenance of flood, um, uh, what do you call it, stormwater drainage, mm. the maintenance of culverts, the clearing of alien vegetation, which is one of the reasons that we get the flooding, because alien vegetation is a very weak root system. It gets ripped out of the soil and then exposes bare soil underneath, and this all um, sort of works together to cause to cause dangerous flooding and washing away of bridges. So that's a, a long answer to, to a very short question. That's the that, that's the, the, the almost the service delivery side of the answer. But also, do we need better policy to keep up with the change, uh, the causation change that you've mentioned? Well, we clearly need to do something about um, our emissions, if that's what you're talking about. South Africa is is in the sort of A team. Of, of emitters per capita in the world. And, and if we want to be taken seriously uh, along with the other players, then we certainly have to focus on that. And, and, and it, it, facing a fossil fuel future is just simply not viable for us. Um, and economically, it's going to work out that, you know, re, 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 uh, renewable energy is just going to, to um, beat fossil fuel energy hands down. And that in, includes nuclear in some respects. Um, so the policy needs to come from a very high level in terms of that planning, but that's going to take some time, and it's not going to, it's not going to change things overnight. We're very, very nervous as climate scientists. Uh, our time scale is 2050, and I'm sure I won't be around by then, but there will be people around. There will be people who are going to incur damage and are going to be very, very vulnerable unless we do something about it now. So that um, that policy is on, on the mitigation of climate change is very, very important, but it's not going to solve the problem. So we have to go the adaptation strategy and those policies must look at infrastructure development, long-term infrastructure development, not short-sighted infrastructure development, and it has to include maintenance. And part of this is community awareness. Part of this is making the man in the street, the woman in the street, the person living even if they are living in an informal settlement aware that they are vulnerable and we are all vulnerable and treating those vulnerabilities and well firstly recognizing them and then treating those vulnerabilities does involve very very careful planning mm. peter johnson i'm going to thank you for joining me on money web at midday you're listening to money web at midday and finally on the program, online and mobile-based job scam attempts seem to be soaring. The Southern African Fraud Prevention Service has released data showing a 600% increase in such scams. In conversation now with Advaita Naidu, who is Africa MD at the recruitment company Jackhammer Global. So why do you think there's been such a significant increase? I mean, I think really people are trying to take advantage of our very high unemployment rate. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are looking for jobs. And you're able to scale these kinds of scams through the use of online tools. It's free to advertise. It's easy to reach a large number of people. And, you know, the law of big numbers will tell you that you're going to catch some people who are unsuspecting and then achieve your ends. And I think the objective of these scammers is to deceive them into giving them money, divulging personal information, or perhaps even doing actual work for 
country. It's interesting you also raised the point about digital adoption and remote work options influencing the rise in these job scams. In what way? Absolutely. More and more people are looking for those remote options. A lot of companies are mandating return to offices and having survived and lived and thrived actually working from home. A lot more people want those options. But, you know, I don't think this work from home offer is entirely new. Uh, I don't know if this is uh, peculiar to to my uh, experience, but I remember reading the back of the Sunday papers. There were all these offers for work from home jobs that required very little skill or very little um, equipment and find, you know, Back in those days, they may have been the offer of envelope stuffing and stamp licking. Um, but now people say, you know, there's no skills required. You can do this from home. And people want that option. People want that latitude and that freedom. And it's easy to take advantage of. To your point then, uh, what are the typical formats of these job scams? They look a lot more credible, authentic and even sophisticated, don't they? do but I mean I think there are a couple of red flags if there are no job details or they're very vague people should proceed with caution anytime somebody asks you for money to process your application or to do something that sounds legitimate like a background check that's another uh, cautionary aspect no company should ever ask you for money in fact a decent company should really be offering to pay for your transport costs or something like that if the salary that's advertised is disproportionately high in relation to what you're currently earning or what the job entails it probably a scam and then you know companies should have some kind of digital footprint they should have a website a landline number a physical south african address a linkedin page Um, if none of that is available i think that's another big red flag and then you know when you proceed to the application stage if a company is asking you for your personal information like your id number or your home address in fact nobody should have this on their cv anymore please remove this now if you have that you know anything that requires uh, an imbalance of information if they are ask you for more information than they're willing to offer you, um, especially with a company name or details of the job. That's a a big red flag. And I think traditionally we're warned to look for spelling or grammar errors. But in in my humble opinion, I don't think that's enough of a red flag these days. A lot of job postings, legitimate job postings are rife with spelling errors. But so often we just ignore those red flags because I guess it's human nature that we are seduced and blindsided by hope and opportunity. And I think a lot of the scammers prey on this hope and opportunity, absolutely. But they also create a sense of urgency to try to override your cautious decision-making processes. They want you to think that if you don't act now, you're going to miss out on a great opportunity. And to think that it's in your control and you want to act fast. And, you know, bank scammers are the same. And absolutely, job scammers act that way. Do tactics of these job scammers differ when they look at perhaps more experienced job seekers versus the desperate and inexperienced? I think in some ways, yes, but I think probably uh, the biggest thing would be the remote work. So more experienced people and the people who have been in jobs, especially office jobs or desk-based jobs, those are the ones who want the work from home opportunities. But others, I mean, you often get call center scams, applications to uh, apply to call centers, and those are generally, you know, come in now, send us your ID, let us do the background checks, and they're targeting a much more mass kind of audience but I think uh, for the more sophisticated more educated more experienced workers it is the return to office or work from home opportunity. We know what the potential repercussions are for people who fall victim to these scams obviously there is an emotional and a financial impact but what kind of recourse if any do they have? 
Look, many times a lot of these scammers are completely untraceable. So I think if there's a Gmail address that's being used, report the Gmail address. If it becomes a financial crime where you have handed over money, that can be reported to SAPS. Um, if there's a fake job posting on LinkedIn, that should be reported to LinkedIn. But by and large, I think cybercrime is difficult to deal with on an individual level. You know, companies have recourse when it comes to cybercrime, but unfortunately, individuals don't have enough mm. to rely on. I think we just have to be able to protect ourselves. And it's that old adage of buyer beware, if it's too good to be true, it's probably going to be false, isn't it? That's absolutely it. I mean, uh, I'm not sure if this is part of your segment, but I think multi-level marketing is also one of those job scams that's all generally too good to be true. You know, that's a whole kind of other kettle of fish. But, you know, if you're going to be making more money recruiting more other people into the scheme than you are selling a product, that's something that's way too good to be true. And they make these outlandish income potential claims. And definitely those just sound like you're doing very little work for a big payoff. Thanks for the warning at the beginning of the work year. Advaita Naidu from uh, Jackhammer Global, thank you. Other stories on our radar before we go. Almost 99% of private school pupils have passed the 2023 matric exams and Rishi Sunak's Rwanda deportation bill has passed a third reading in the House of Commons. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays, then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.